Well, most of you know that we began a sermon series on the book of Leviticus last Sunday morning. And uh, if you remember, one of the goals, as I said, it may sound crazy to you. One of the goals that I mentioned about Leviticus is I want you to come to to love the book of Leviticus. Does that sound crazy? I mean, this this thing that uh, this book that stumbles causes many people to stumble. They can't quite get past this obstacle, the book of Leviticus. I want you to to love it. Now that's not unreachable, by the way, and I have biblical authority for that. It says in Psalm. 119, verse 97, the psalmist just just gushes out. He says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, rightly, we take that passage of Scripture and, and we apply it to say something like this. Oh, God, how I love your word. It's my meditation all the day. Or, Oh, how I love the Bible. It is my meditation all the day. Meaning, Meaning that the Bible we have, it's... It's our delight and it's our joy and we meditate on it often. And there's nothing wrong with such a, an interpretation or application of that passage. The, it's the attitude every believer in Jesus Christ ought to have. So we come to, to love His whole Bible from Genesis through Revelation. It is the complete revelation of God and we, we love that. We think of its truths often. But I want you to think about what the psalmist was saying for himself. He says, Oh, How I love thy law. Now, when the psalmist wrote this, the New Testament wasn't written. And when he wrote this, he said, I love thy law. Not that I I love the prophets. He probably did, but that's not what he, he didn't say. I love the historical books, the writings. He said, no, but I love your law. What's he referring to? He's referring to the law. He's referring to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Oh, how I love Genesis. Oh, how I love Exodus. And oh, how I love, help me now, Leviticus. And as the psalmist would love Leviticus, so I want you to love Leviticus as well. I mean, if anything from preaching through this book, if we come to that conclusion, you say, oh, I've seen the riches here and the treasures that I, that I, I love that. But I know that's not going to happen apart from the Spirit of God working in our lives. Let's pray for God's grace. Let's pray. Father, in prayer meeting this morning, we thought about, talked about, prayed through for each of us. Jeremiah 9, let not the the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows the Lord, that the Lord knows him. And so, Lord, I would pray that that would be our boast God, not because of our great intelligence or because of our great strength or our riches. All those things are, are, are fleeting. God, but help us to see that we have reason to place our efforts and our joys into the eternal Word of God that has been forever established in heaven. And so, Lord, I would pray that You would do this work that I've put here before this congregation of loving Leviticus. I pray, God, that that would permeate our souls, that that would become a reality in our lives. And so even right now, Lord, I pray with this psalmist again, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from Your law. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're diving right into Leviticus chapter 1, the burnt offering. That is the title of my message this morning, the burnt offering. 
This is the first of five offerings that are detailed here in the book of Leviticus. We have the burnt offering in chapter 1, the grain offering in chapter 2, the peace offering in chapter 3, the sin offering in chapter 4, and the guilt offering in chapter 5. Now, those, those breakdowns of the, the burnt and the grain and the sin and the peace and the sin and the guilt offerings are, are not exactly right. The chapter breaks don't quite correspond, particularly for the sin offering. It spills over into chapter 5 and the guilt offering spills into chapter 6. But it's safe, safe for you to memorize them in these ways. Burnt sacrifice, grain sacrifice, peace sacrifice, sin sacrifice, and guilt sacrifice. And back to several years ago, I, I set to memorize this. And so I, I concocted this funny little story that I'll just, I'll just tell to you this morning. And um, you'll say, hey, that's a pretty corny story. But if it helps you to remember, memorize these five words, that's fine. There was this farmer, his name was Bernie Grains. Now, Bernie Grains was a caring farmer, was a loving farmer, had a, had a daughter uh, that he loved and took care of. And any good farmer will share with his daughter some farm animals that she was to take care of. And so Bernie Grain's um, daughter's name was Cindy. And he gave Cindy these animals to keep responsibility of, to, to prep, to show to the fair and those sorts of things. Well, one day Cindy was having problems with one of her female young pigs. And if you know, a female young pig is often called a guilt. It's just a, a guilt is what, what that's often called. And for some reason, this guilt was crazy. I mean, maybe it was something that ate. Maybe it got one of uh, her dad's Mountain Dews because, of course, Bernie Green loves Mountain Dew. So just running around and Cindy couldn't catch up with her guilt. And so eventually she called her dad and Bernie came. And, and sure enough, being the dad, helping, helping the, the child, found and caught this pig and, and, and calmed it down and set it on its, on its lap. All calm. And so the moral of the story is that Bernie Grains pacifies Cindy's guilt. Bernie, Bert, burnt offering. Grains, a grain offering. Pacifies, peace offering. Cindy's sin offering. Guilt, the pig. Bernie Grains pacifies Cindy's guilt. And if you remember that little phrase, you've got five chapters of Leviticus kind of in your head. And we're going to talk this morning about Bernie. We're going to talk about the burnt offerings. Chapter 1, I just want to read the text. And it's really not too difficult to understand. There's three sets of sacrifices. From the herd, the flock, and from the birds. Listen for them. And much of the sacrifice methodology is repetitive. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord... You shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons and the priests shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar, that is, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron and the priests shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire of the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If, secondly, his gift 
for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats. He shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And he shall cut it in pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire of the altar. But the entrails and legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Thirdly, if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its neck and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire, it is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. I just want to dig into this. First point I'm calling this, the burnt offering. I just want to spend a few moments looking here at the details of the offering. And, and I'm not expecting you to become an expert in this because, quite frankly, we don't need to be experts in this. Right? Because Jesus has come, we don't need to offer sacrifices we don't need to offer the sacrifices according to this way. We just simply need to believe and trust in Christ. And so to become an expert on a burnt offering is like becoming an expert today in using an IBM Selectric typewriter. Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, I think I got a picture up there here. Right? There it is. The IBM. Kids, you've you seen this before? Sort of. A little bit. It's kind of fun to use. Now, I, I learned typing on a machine that looked exactly like this. I mean, it, it, I think it was exactly like a margin and, and everything like that, margin release. And, and here's, kids, for you who don't know, we'd put paper in it, okay? And uh, we would, would line it up, and we'd press the key, all of a sudden the machine would go, and it was really pretty amazing, this ball would come up and strike the page and would come down, and there'd be a letter right there. We'd hit another key, and boom, the letter would be right there. And it was, it was pretty amazing, amazing stuff. And whenever we printed a wrong letter, we backspaced and then put this little sheet. Uh, you remember this? It kind of had white, white, whatever, paint on the other side. And we put that right there and we'd strike the same letter. And basically it would imprint a white letter right on top of that black letter, thereby erasing the letter. And it was wonderful. And how thankful I was when I went to college. Uh, my second year of college, and I had an auto-correcting typewriter. It was really cool, right? You'd press the wrong button, and you just hit that backspace key, and it and take it right off. It was really, it was really neat. Today things are different. We don't need our IBM Selectric typewriters because we have these, right? Which does everything that the IBM Selectric does, but does better. Now, my kids though would say this is better yet, right? So my kids, I'm not sure if you saw the difference between those two, but we struggle with being Macs and PCs in our home. But that's a that's a Mac right there. But I'll just to say this, right? The old covenant, the old testament is like the IBM Selectric typewriter, and the new covenant is like the computers. And what the new covenant does is so much better than what the old covenant. It can do exactly what that does, but far more. And to become an expert in the Old Testament rituals, becoming an expert in something which is obsolete. So we don't need to become experts in this. However, there are some things that as you understand the IBM Selectric typewriter, your understanding of the computers will, will help. Like carriage return. 
Think about what a carriage return is. Kids are like, I don't know what a carriage return is. A carriage return means that you take that carriage and you move the whole thing to the other side. Or think about, what about the shift button? Remember, the whole thing would shift or those electric balls would shift around so that when it prints, it printed capital. Those are kind of some things historically that we, we can get and glean. And so also, as we burn the burnt offering, learn of the burnt offering, we can see some things of Christ that we can come to appreciate in greater way. So the, the burnt offering here in, in chapter 1 is a foundational offering. It is uh, often referred to as we go through, we'll, we'll see that, that like the, the sin offering particularly, we'll say, okay, prepare your offerings this way and then do just like you did in the burnt offering. And so oftentimes the burnt offering is just kind of, kind of referred to. Now, this is not the first time that a burnt offering is in Scripture. Um, Cain and Abel offered offering to the Lord. And, and, and there's, there's something in us that feels like when we worship God, we need to give Him something. And as far back as the first couple, Adam and Eve, and the first children, there was this trying to appease God or trying to reach out to God. There was a sacrifice there. Noah, after the flood, offered a burnt offering. Abraham offered a burnt offering. It was called to offer Isaac upon the altar, but instead offered a ram. Moses, when he said, we, we need to go and worship in the wilderness, he said, we need to go and offer our burnt offerings before the Lord. So this isn't anything new, but what's happening now in the time frame of historical revelation is that God is putting down specific details how He wants His burnt offering to be, to be done. Now, in the time frame, you remember this is written by Moses. This is after Exodus chapter 40. When the tabernacle was erected, right, when it was uh, built and everything, now at this point comes the instructions about what to do in the tabernacle is the, the time frame. He gives three different sacrifices here. First comes from the herd, that's from the cows. Second from the flock, that is sheep and goats, 10 to 13. And then 14 through 70 is from the birds, either turtle doves or, or pigeons. And, and with each of these sacrifices, the protocol is much the same. Now, there are some variations, but most of it's the same. Right? You, you bring a male without defect. It's male bull, male goat, male sheep. It doesn't talk about a male bird because it's kind of hard to figure out whether a bird's male or female. We had a bird for a while in our home and we called him Dexter. And I'm not sure if Dexter was really a Dexter or Dexterous. It was? It was a male. Maybe the house of birds know. Okay, we know. We know. I don't know, right? Because it's more obvious on the bulls and the, the lambs, all right? But anyway, male without defect, not, no blind, no lame, no sick, the, the kind that you would show off at the fair. Right? Just a, a pristine example. These are the ones that God wanted for sacrifice. And you bring the, the, the animal to the tent of the meeting. You'd meet your priest there. You would lay your hand on the sheep, bull, or goat, and you yourself would kill it. That animal would flop dead. Then the priest would take it from there. The priest would, would take it, uh, take the blood, throw it on the side of the altar, kind of fling it on the side of the altar all around. Would do that with some of the blood. He would skin the, the burnt offering. He placed the head and the fat on the altar to burn. He'd cut up some others, wash the entrails and legs, and then burn it all on the altar, this fire that he had prepared, and is burning up as smoke unto the Lord. Now, there's some differences with a bird, right? Maybe a bird is too small that the priest would take the bird, walk over the, the uh, offering, and would wring its neck and would, would pour out his blood and actually would throw away the, the wings and the, 
uh, the crop of the bird, which is like, like the neck, throw that away and then throw the bird on top of it. That's the only part that wasn't burned, was just the part of the wings. But it's totally useless to, to anybody. But the, the idea is the same. You bring an animal, kill the animal, and burn everything. It's the burnt offering. It's all fine and well, but I just say this. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what took place at this scene? I love what I read in Gordon, Gordon Wenham's commentary. You've probably never heard of this guy, but he wrote a masterful commentary on Leviticus. I'll be referring to him often, I'm sure, in future days when the treading in Leviticus gets a little rougher. He said this, Using a little imagination, every reader of the Old Testament soon realized that these ancient sacrifices were very moving occasions. They make modern church services seem tame and dull by comparison. The ancient worshiper did not just listen to the minister and sing a few hymns. He was actively involved in the worship. He had to choose an unblemished animal from his own flock, bring it to the sanctuary, kill it, dismember it with his own hands, and then watch it go up in smoke before his very eyes. And I heard him say that when he teaches his seminary class on Leviticus, he often would bring in a teddy bear. And uh, he would take this and say, I want to show you a little bit of the passion of what's happening here in the sacrifice. He'd, he'd take his teddy bear and he'd slit his throat. He'd begin to dismember him and throw him. Now, I'm not going to do that today, all right? For a couple reasons, but I think the first reason is because this guy's sweater that says, I am loved. And that, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't be such a good thing to, to do to this guy. But I'm trying to think about how, how can you put in your minds a perspective of what's happening. Because like what we did this morning, what we're doing this morning is very, very lame and peaceful as compared to what, what took place there. It's a, it's, it's a gruesome scene of what took place. And, and, and to help you, I have a few images of the tabernacle, first of all, I'll show you. This is the tent of meeting I spoke about. That, that's spoken about here in Leviticus chapter 1, right here, Exodus 20 through 25. You can read how God gave instructions uh, to, to Israel to build that. It's right here, right at the curtain, right here in front, where the people would bring their sacrifice. And there's the bronze altar. That's what we're talking about. That's where the burnt offering would go, right on that altar. So they don't have to go very far. Uh, in fact, even to give you a, a perspective of this whole thing, it's 150 feet deep. It's 75 feet wide. So that makes it about a fifth of a football field. It's really not very big at all. The altar there is seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet. So that's even smaller than this platform up here. It would sit four and a half feet tall. But there'd be a bronze grating on the bottom of it to let the ashes fall through. So it's probably up a little higher so that the ashes could, could go through this grating. And so the priest could shovel everything out from, from the bottom. And maybe th- this would help. Here at Timna Park in Israel, they have uh, erected, they have made a, uh, next slide please, they have made a uh, full-size replica of what the tabernacle would be like. This is way out in the desert. This, by the way, is what Israel looks like. It's just desert barrenness. This is a little north of Eilat, I think maybe 30 miles north of Eilat, down in the southern Sinai Peninsula. Uh, but this is... Um, about the tabernacle, you see those, those fences up about seven and a half feet tall. And they'd enter the tent of meeting over here. You can see the, uh, the altar. In fact, I got a close-up view of that altar. If we can uh, go there to the next slide. 
Yeah, this picture is a little grainy, but there you see the altar. You see some probably some shovels and stuff. They walk up that ramp to be able to get over, you know, this uh, this height, this thing. But then they'd be able to shovel that stuff out of there. That's where the animal would be burned. And you got to understand the ground all around here be covered with blood. This altar on the side would be covered with blood because every animal is sacrificed, taken and thrown against the side of of the altar. Flesh smell, burnt flesh smell would fill the air. Just the aroma would be far different than our our atmosphere here. We're so distant from this. I mean, we live in a society, the only meat we get is we buy at the store. Only a few of us have seen animals butchered before. I know the Mitchells are into that. They've got their chickens and they've been doing that. If you want to figure that out, you want to go and spend some time with the, the chickens, right? You can go see that. But I have for you a picture that I really hesitated to show you because it's gruesome. But this is the reality. This is the reality what took place every day, often, at the tabernacle. Let's see this. This is a picture of a slaughtered bull. Just see its neck. Slaughter right there. And we're just, we're just so far removed from that. But that's the extent to which Moses is talking about here. We just don't see this today. Or here is a tamer picture of the lamb being slaughtered. In fact, I'm not sure if this is just a reenactment with some blood on the ground and the lamb still alive. But there's the idea that he's going to take and slice his, his neck and then bring it to the altar. And for us, we just don't see this very often. But for Israel, it was a daily occurrence. They were to offer a male lamb every morning. And a male lamb every twilight, every day, two lambs would lose their life as a burnt offering. This was a weekly thing. Every Sabbath, on top of the daily sacrifices, there would be Sabbath offerings of two male lambs as a burnt offering. This happened every month. At the beginning of every month, Israel was to offer up burnt offerings. Two bulls, one male lamb, and seven, one ram and seven male lambs. This is a yearly thing at many of the feasts, the Passover, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Day of Atonement, Feast of Booze, burnt offerings were offered up to the Lord. Now, the exact quantity of animals varied. Sometimes there was a lot, sometimes there's few, but generally there was two bulls, one ram, and seven male lambs offered up. Israel knew deeply and well what Leviticus 1 is talking about. For us... We offer no sacrifices. Is that because we don't need a sacrifice? Au contraire, we need a sacrifice. And if the Lord is teaching anything in Leviticus 1 and Leviticus 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, it is that we need a sacrifice. Israel needed a sacrifice. We need a sacrifice. And the good news is this, that Jesus Christ has become our sacrifice. Remember when Jesus, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming along, what did He say? He said, Behold the... Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, this Lamb was going to be slaughtered for the sin of the world. In the fifth chapter of Revelation, John describes what he sees. He says, Between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a Lamb standing as though it had been slain. Here's this Lamb standing. I mean, most Lamb are on four. four it's just standing up right, with, with a, maybe a slit in its throat, having been slain, but now it is alive. That is Jesus Christ. And when you... When you read through its context, it's obvious that Jesus Christ slaughtered for our sins. 
He's redeemed us by his blood is what Revelation chapter one say. Now, Jesus wasn't burned up on the altar as these animals were, but he was entirely consumed. As he died, was placed in the grave. Now, let's go back to Leviticus chapter one, because here we get a hint as to the significance of this sacrifice. Now, we don't see in Leviticus one a. A real stated purpose so much like like in the other sacrifices, like the, the sin offering. Chapter four, verse one, right? If someone sins, let him bring this animal here. We don't see that here in chapter one. It tells the procedure of the sacrifice, but it gives us a hint here in chapter one, verse four, about the significance of the sacrifice. It says this. The worshiper shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. It should be accepted for him. Here it is to make atonement for him. We get to chapter four, the sin offering, where we talk about sin. We get to chapter five, the guilt offering, we're going to talk about guilt. But here in chapter one, there's no mention of sin, there's no mention of guilt, there's no mention of culpability on the behalf of the off, the, the worshiper bringing the offering. It's because I believe in many ways sin and guilt are assumed. Verse four merely mentions the cleansing and forgiveness and restoration found in the sacrifice, and it's summed up in this word atonement. It should be accepted for him to make atonement for him. In fact, on three separate occasions, then we see, as Darren alluded to in his prayer, that that God is satisfied. He's pleased with the offering that is that is set up before the Lord, that burns before the Lord. Verse nine. And the priest shall burn all of it in the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Verse 13 at the end, right? And the priest shall burn all of it in the offer, off, altar as a burnt offering, food offering with a pleasant, pleasing aroma to the Lord. Verse 17, and the priest shall burn on the altar and on the wood that's on the fire, it's a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The Lord loved these sacrifices. They were pleasing to him. And, and the idea is this, is that the sacrifice they were offered, the smoke went up. God looked down with a favorable countenance toward those worshipers. As, as they bring their worship to the Lord, as they bring their offerings to the Lord, they're, they're offering this to the Lord and God is coming down and saying, yes, I'm pleased with that. And there can be a meeting. There can be a, uh, a relationship there. And that's one of the fundamental ideas about sacrifice. It's how do we approach God? Well, we approach God through a smell of burning flesh. Well, they did anyway, but who thinks that burning flesh smells good? <laughs> you do, huh? <clears throat> I don't think so. Right? Whenever burning flesh in our home, we open the windows, we turn on the fan, we try to vent everything out because the, the dinner has been neglected and you know everything's burning. That doesn't happen very often, right? Not at our house, all right? But I know it doesn't happen very often at many years. But it does happen from time to time. And it's awful. We just want to get that smell out. I don't care how cold it is outside. We're opening up the windows. We're trying to just get that smoke and that smell out of here. But God loves that smell. And it's not so much for the smell itself. Uh, I think it's because of what the smell represents. It represents people coming to the Lord to worship. It represents people coming to the Lord in the way that he instructed. It represents people learning a little bit about his ways, of how he is approached. Galatians 3.24 says, The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. And burnt offerings were teaching us about Jesus. 
as they're offered over and over and over and over and over again, just a little bit more about Jesus, a little bit more about Jesus. Hey, we need sacrifice. We need sacrifice. We need sacrifice. The New Testament calls these burnt offerings shadows. Right, that are shadows that are leaning and pointing us to Christ. I think that's why God delighted it, because his, his people were learning a bit. And he was showing what was going to take place in the sacrifice of his son. Well, there's the burnt offering. Let's, let's transition to my second point this morning. Just some thoughts. Some thoughts about the burnt offering. Here, I want to help bring it more to application. about How do you apply Leviticus 1 to us? And here's some thoughts. First of all, worship is costly. I have three points really of application and observation. Worship is costly. Let's not underestimate how much all this costs. Leviticus chapter 1 speaks primarily of an individual coming to the Lord for worship. You can even see it there. Verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel. When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord... He is to bring it in this way. In other times, many times I already told you that the whole nation was offering sacrifices on, on behalf of like, like all of themselves, like a corporate sacrifice. This would be like a, a global common grace coming to the whole nation of Israel, right? Every morning, every evening, every Sabbath, every month, every festival day. But Leviticus 1 is primarily describing when an individual worship comes for the Lord, wants to commune with Him. Maybe there's sin, it's confessed. But that is dealt with explicitly in the, the sin offering. But there is a, a, something that says, I want to commune with God. I, I want to come to Him. I, I want to approach Him. I'm going to do so through a, a burnt offering. And, and I just say this, how easy it is to pass by all these things about what, what this means. An offering of livestock from the herd. A, a bull is expensive. Suspensive for the Israelites in those days. A bull was real help to people. A bull would pull your plow so that you could farm. A bull would drag your cart so that you could carry things from one place to another. A bull would carry a burden for you. You could even ride a bull as your cart is being pulled behind it, just kind of walking right along. A bull was very helpful to me. And I think the best equivalent that I can think of in our day culture is our next picture there. That's our modern day bull. I mean, think about everything that bull can do. It can pull a tractor. That bull can carry your lumber. And that bull can transport the family. And God says, verse 2, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your truck. Okay, now I know that that's like totally missing it, okay? Because it's got to be a living animal. There's got to be there's got to be blood, okay? But for the sake, I'm just looking at a cost perspective, a, a usefulness perspective, to bring your your truck. And God wasn't asking for your rundown truck that's traveled 150,000 miles that you can give to cars for kids, all right? He's talking about this newest model. He says, verse three. Let me just loosely translate it in light of this truck metaphor. And he shall offer. This year's model, without any dents or scratches of any kind, he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that it may be accepted before the Lord. Verse 4, he shall lay his hand on the hood of the trunk of the truck and it be accepted for him to make atonement for him and then he shall destroy the truck before the Lord. Not just kind of take its tires off and go back home and replace them. We're talking about totaling and compounding this car like smash. For the Lord. 
We wouldn't do such a silly thing, would we? I don't think so, but this is exactly what the Lord was asking of Israel. Something costly, something dear to you, something helpful to you. When David bought the threshing floor from Arauna as a place for the temple to be built, Arauna was willing to, to give it to David as a gift. But David said, no, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. I will not offer an offering that costs me nothing. I'm going to give my new truck to the Lord. And it's similar for us today, I think, that coming to the Lord, it should cost us something. Worship is costly. You know, there are many people across the land who claim to be followers of Christ, and yet their following of Christ only comes when it's convenient, not costly. Just like whenever it fits into my schedule, that I'll serve the Lord. Whenever I've got leftover time, I'll serve the Lord. Whenever it's convenient, I'll serve the Lord. Right? So church services are missed because it's not convenient. Oh, I was just too tired. I had to catch up on my sleep. It's just too hard for me. I can't. I got some, something else came up. Church isn't convenient, so I won't come. Or other serving opportunities are missed because it's not convenient. Oh, I'm too busy. I've got, I've got this. I'm engaged in this. I can't, can't do that. Right? Engaged in these selfish pursuits rather than a serving pursuit. Because that's not convenient. I say serving isn't ever convenient. Or opportunities for equipping are missed because it's not convenient. Oh, I know I'd learn about God. Oh, I know I'd learn about the Bible. Oh, I know I'd be trained. But it's, it's not convenient. I get something else I'd rather do that time. They don't give to the Lord because they don't have a surplus to give to the Lord right now. It's, it's not convenient for me. See, when I have a surplus, then it's convenient. I get just give to the Lord. We're, we're going to look even next week, Leviticus chapter 2, how God wants our first fruits. He wants it to cost rather than merely be conveniently left over. People often, though, wait till it becomes easy to give, where they can give and it doesn't affect them because it's just left over. Left over, what am I going to do with this? I'll just give it to the Lord. But worship is costly. Isn't that what Jesus demands of His followers? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Aren't those words of cost? To deny yourself? Take up your cross, be willing to die and follow Jesus. And when people were ready to follow Jesus, he often turned them away because they said, I don't think you've come to the cost. I, I don't think you're ready. He says, foxes have holes. Birds have nests, but the Son of God has nowhere to lay his head. Are you ready to come with me to a place you can't lay your head any place? Let me go bury my father. No, let the dead bury their dead. Jesus says, come now and come at cost to yourself. We're not simply to follow Christ when it's convenient. Jesus didn't say, if any man come after me, let him come when it's convenient. Let him do what he wants and feels like, when he wants and feels like it, on your terms. Jesus says, no, you come on my terms. Complete surrender. In fact, even on the way to church this morning, all to Jesus I surrender. All to Him I freely give. I will ever love and trust Him in His presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my precious Savior, I surrender all. Worship is costly. 
requires all of us. We, we sang in our service, take all that I am, Lord, and all that I cling to. You are my Savior. I owe everything to. Take all the treasures that lie in my storehouse. They cannot follow when I enter your house because you are my great treasure. So I surrender all. Take all my cravings for vain recognition, fleshly indulgence and worldly ambition. I want so much more to make you the focus so to serve you in secret never be noticed. I surrender all. Take all my hunger for all that's forbidden, all my desires for sinful appetites, every desire and sin I keep hidden. Search me and know me. I want to bring to you a life that is holy and sanctified through you, so I surrender all. Did you mean those words when you sang those words? Or did you just kind of sing them because you sing everything that's up here and doesn't think about it? The burnt offering teaches us that worship is costly. And I think it costs all of us. And that's not some second level Christian, the, the devoted Christian. That is what's required of all of us. Is to seek Him, surrendering all. Well, second... Observation, application, thought I have is this. And not only worship costly, worship is wasteful. Worship is wasteful. I mean, what's, what's taking place in Leviticus 1 is not the model of efficiency. I mean, here you're, you're taking away animals that could be of use to you and you're burning them up. You're burning every last little bit of them up. I mean... At least you could maybe burn the bad parts and use the good parts, right? Maybe before you destroy the, the truck, maybe you take the engine out that you could put in another place or maybe save the wheels before you destroy it. At least, okay, we'll give some of that, but we'll recycle some of this, right? We Americans love to recycle, right? We, we want to use it all, all rightly. Uh, and in fact, though, this isn't such a bad principle because when we see the grain offering next week in chapter 2, it's not entirely consumed. There's a portion that goes to the priests, and for the peace offering and the sin offering and the guilt offering, there's a portion there that goes to the priests. In fact, we'll see that this is God's divine way so as to care for the Levites, to give them food, is to bring this animal and to burn some and to distribute the rest among the priests so they might have something to eat. So that's not a, it's not a bad thought. It's more like our American way, but that's not the way of the burnt offering. The burnt offering is everything consumed. I just say... Worship is, is wasteful. I mean, you can see everything consumed. Verse 8. And Aaron's son, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that's on the fire of the altar. But it's in trails, his legs, he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Verse 13. The priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It's a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma. And the birds, though everything of the bird is not burned, that which is discarded is useless. It's not like you're going to use that part to eat or feed anybody. It's just going to sit there by the side of the altar until someone throws away with the ash heap. But here the idea is that the worship is wasteful. See, God isn't into efficiency when it comes to His worship. To help you understand this, flowers, men... Flowers are wasteful. They waste money. They're pretty for a season for a little bit and then they're, they're gone. So why do you purchase them for your wives? And I'm like the worst at this. Okay, I don't remember last time I... I don't know. It's been a long time since I bought flowers for my wife. But it's, it's wasteful. 
some regards, it's, it's wasteful. But why would you purchase one for your, some flowers for your wife? Because you love them. You want to brighten their day. Give them an ob- say, hey, you're an object of my affection. Because the happiness of your wife is more important than your own saving or being efficient with your finances. And so it is with God, right? God, our relationship with God, we, we ought to be willing to waste when it comes to God because God is worth it. And we want to, to please Him as we give our all to Him. Same, parallel comes across pretty, pretty close. Now, now, people outside the church ought to look at us as crazy in this regard. Why would you get up early every Sunday morning and come to a, a place of worship? What a waste of Sunday morning. I mean, you work five days a week. Maybe you're coming in on Saturday. Maybe you're doing housework. And then Sunday, you forfeit every, every Sunday morning to go. What a waste. I mean, you could be out jogging. You could, there's certainly some things on TV you could watch. There's some fun you can have. You can, whatever, go to the lake. You can, whatever, do you, whatever you want. But why do you do it? Well, you know what? Worship is wasteful. We waste our Sunday, waste, quote unquote, our Sunday mornings. Now, we're here because we believe that as much as we give to the Lord, God gives that back because our delight in Him is, is what our, our joy is. And so we're delighted. As I told you last week, your greatest delight will come when you're obedient to the Lord. And so coming to worship the Lord will give you great returns, all right? In fact, we want to come empty and just say, God, what I have, I give you. It's not like it's not like we give God something great and He says, oh, wow, that was really good. Here, I'll give this back to you. It's known we come totally empty and say, God, we need help. We're all, all that you, we're worshiping you because you're the source of our help. We do get back, okay? But the world would see it as wasteful, that you're just wasting time every Sunday morning. The church might say this, why do you give money to that organization to support this building that's empty for six days out of the week? It's really not used. I mean, that's not, that's not very efficient, is it? What a, what a waste. And why would you support that organization that's going to take your money and in turn give it away to other people overseas? All right, so we're right now, we're up to 25% of the income that you give to the church that goes overseas. goes not to us. We want to raise that to half because we're in rich America. We're praying about that this morning, about doing that. We don't have the resources to do that now in any way. But we want to just, just give it. Why would you give to someone? We're just going to give it away. You're not even helping us. We're helping someone else. What a, what a waste. Or, or why would you spend time with other people, helping them with their needs? Isn't that a waste of your time? Don't you have needs? Can't you do things? Don't you have better things to do? But for all of you who served, you know that your joy comes in serving others and giving of yourself. Yes, it's wasteful of me because I'm not getting anything in return. But the blessing I receive on top of that is, is much better. And that is the essence of worship. is wasting. is giving to God abundantly. I just think about the, the prodigal son, right? The story of the prodigal son could equally be called the story of the prodigal father. You know what prodigal means? It means wasteful. The prodigal son went out living. He was just wasteful. He wasted all his money. The prodigal father was wasteful as well because he gave what? He gave all his grace away. Grace and mercy. He was just wasteful with his grace. And so we, likewise, waste our grace on others. We waste our finances on others. We waste our time on other people because that's what worship is about. That's right. Even when it all doesn't make sense. Like a great illustration of how it doesn't make sense is Noah. As soon as he leaves the ark, God says, 
Bring out with you every living creature that you have all flesh, birds and animals, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth, be fruitful, multiply on the earth. Right? I mean, you got, you got all these animals caged up in the ark. And they've been multiplying during this time. And they got more animals than even you started with. And he got out there and you just say, okay, let's multiply on the face of the earth. And soon afterwards, now I'm not sure how quickly afterwards, soon afterwards, Noah built an altar to the Lord, took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered them as burnt offerings on his altar to the Lord. Like, I thought you're supposed to multiply. Why? You're just, you're depopulating the earth by burning up all these sacrifices. And every clean animal... Every clean bird, he took some and offered it up. That's pretty wasteful. The animal is supposed to be fruitful and multiply, so why are you sacrificing them on the altar? It doesn't make sense. And yet, listen to what God said, or what the testimony thinks. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, this burnt offering, the Lord said this in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's why I cursed the ground in the first place. Genesis 6.5 Every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. He says this, But neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In other words, God was pleased with Noah's wasteful sacrifice and God's wrath upon the world was appeased and His promise continues to today. That's how God's economy works. We waste towards God. He gives us back in abundance. Worship is wasteful. There's something that delights God in it and there's something in which we ourselves are delighted in giving Him as well. All right, so worship is costly. It's wasteful. And, and that's pretty, of anything from, from our time in Leviticus. I just, I just want to stir us to holiness and passion for God. So I think these passages do. Thirdly, worship is repetitive. We learn that here. This is a, a consistent thing. We, we don't get it necessarily from here, but... We get it from other passages that talk about the life of an Israelite. Every day, morning and evening, a burnt sacrifice would go up. Morning and evening, morning and evening. In the wilderness, probably they had the tents surrounding there, probably a million people in the, the community. That they all couldn't cram into this small, you know, a fifth of a football size arena to see actually the sacrifice. But as it went up in smoke, they could see that smoke from all around. You've seen house fires. And you can see a house fire from a long ways away. You said, oh, there it is. And they around their camp would have everywhere been able to see that smoke going up as a daily reminder of what God requires of us. He requires that blood be shed. He requires blood. Let us never forget that. That God is holy and we are sinful and that in order to, to come to Him, we need to deal with our sin. Our, our sin needs to be atoned, verse 4. That's the idea there. They must be forgiven. The, the ransom must be paid. The, the, the ransom must be bought. The price paid. And the burnt offering tells us that that's where the atonement is. The atonement is there in the blood. Repetitive every day. Now, ultimately, we know that it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us. First Peter 1, 18 knowing that you are not redeemed from perishable things like silver or gold, but you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. That like a lamb without blemish or spot. His blood was spilt once for us, but it ought to come fresh every day. And for Israel, they had that, that constant smoke that went up and they saw the smoke every day. For us, 
We don't see the smoke, but I say this, church family, there's not a day that should pass when you don't look back and reflect upon the cross of Christ, realizing that there your redemption was accomplished, that, that you are brought near to God through the blood. We may not have the smoke rising up in camp, but we have something more precious. We have, we have God's Word that we can go to, that we can return to, that tells us of how through His blood we can be cleansed of our sins. And so I say this, church family, come to Christ often. Think much of what Christ has done for your soul. See the metaphorical smoke, if you will. Constantly looking back to the, the blood of Christ. I, I think that's a, a lesson that we can learn here in Leviticus. Worship is costly. It's wasteful. It's repetitive. It ought to be a daily occurrence. We pour out our heart to the Lord as we seek Him. So let's pray. Lord, I would pray as we began the service that we would come to love Leviticus. It's teaching us about worship, teaching us about coming to You. And I pray, Lord, that we would come to You with open hands. We come to You, God, with what You give to us. What do You have but You haven't first received? God, what we have is from Your hand. And so, Lord, I I pray that it would be given freely back to You. God, I pray that we would be those who worship You with our whole hearts for all of our lives. And may You stir in our hearts, God, just a a holy passion for You. Lord, I pray particularly that You might convict us when our, our walk with You has become merely a walk of convenience rather than a walk of cost. I pray You'd convict us, God, when we're so careful with everything we have rather than be wasteful and lavishing it upon You and lavishing it upon others what you called us to do in the burnt offering. So help us, Lord. Help us to think this week about the burnt offering. And prepare our hearts to think about the, the grain offering next week. That you might touch us and teach us what we have to learn. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.